Um, anyway, thank you for being here this morning at Redemption Church. Uh, back in January, we started a new series going through uh, some minor prophets. And so uh, we just came out of Jonah a couple of weeks ago. And last week, Ben introduced us to the book of Amos. And so we'll be in Amos for the next few weeks and moving on to a couple of other minor prophets after that. Uh, but we will be dealing with minor prophets up to this summer. And so there are certainly some, um, some hard things to hear as we read through the minor prophets. And this morning is going to be one of those times where it's pretty difficult to hear some things um, that is written in the book of Amos. Uh, but that's where we'll be, specifically looking at Amos chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through Amos 4, verse 3. So I'm going to take a moment and read those before I pray for us. But Amos chapter 3, if you want to uh, turn there if you have your Bibles. Uh, Amos chapter 3, and this is what God's Word says. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. You shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray. Holy Father, 
thank you for your word. God, it is difficult to hear some of these things. And yet, God, this is your word for us. Your inspired word, your scripture for us. God, this morning as we work through this passage, as we talk about some of the things here, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us close to you, and that we would meet with you this morning. I pray that Christ would be lifted high and we would be drawn to you. I pray that we would be changed. I pray that our hearts would be aligned with your hearts. I pray that if repentance needs to happen, that repentance would happen. But God, I pray that you draw us to yourself this morning. I pray that we meet with you in this place. And I pray that you speak to our minds and hearts in the way that you would. That we would hear what you would have us to hear. God, I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Right This morning, I, I need you to hear something deeply personal to me. This past week, as I was working through this passage and reading Amos chapter 3, and very specifically, the beginning of Amos chapter 3, where God speaks to His people and says, You, of all the peoples in the earth, I've loved you. I chose you. And then God turns and He, and he begins to speak of their iniquity and how they'll be punished for their sin. As I was working through this passage, I do something that I never do. I, I broke down. And I literally spent a little time just crying over Amos chapter 3, it hurt and it cut so deeply because I saw myself in this story. If you know me, you know that I am stoic and unfeeling and completely detached from emotions. <laughs> and I kind of like it that way. I feel like emotions are just weakness and that's how people get you, through your emotions. But... But when the weight of this passage hit me, when I saw myself in this story, when I saw myself as someone that Amos is speaking to, rather than as Amos, I was crushed and humbled. And so my purpose today, if I'm honest, is not to spend a little bit of time entertaining us or just giving us some nice truths from God's Word. My purpose this morning is to align our hearts with the heart of God. And so my goal today is to call you, to beg you, to plead with you that your hearts would be aligned with God's heart as it's revealed in this passage. And so I'm going to ask you to do the hard work of tuning in to what God has for us, even if it's not a lot of fun. And even if it's not entertaining. It's going to take a little bit of work, so are you guys willing to do that with me this morning? I, I hope so. I've heard it a few times from different people leading up to and after last week's first sermon on Amos where Ben introduced us to this book and did an incredible job doing so, that Amos is a, a, a tough book. It's a tough book, book to unpack that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of good stuff in Amos. And in reality, Amos is a very biting, very caustic, very sarcastic book. Even in chapter 3, when God is asking these questions that we just read, in chapter 4, which we didn't read, where God tells His people to continue, go on and worship in ways that are evil, it's so sarcastic and biting and caustic. Amos doesn't hold back. And as you get to some of the other minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, some other ones, 
it just gets harder. And, and these books are just difficult, and they're, and they're small, but these books pack a really big punch. But what we have to see is that despite the fact that they're so difficult, I think at times, we've got to understand that these books are just as relevant to our lives today as they were to the original hearers of what Amos said to the northern kingdom of Israel. I think that books like Jonah and Amos and the other books that we'll eventually get to, these books help us to do the very thing that I think God would have for us this morning, and that would be to align our hearts with the heart of God. Ultimately, they point us to Jesus, but they call us to line up with God's heart as well. I have no doubt that they point us to Jesus, and we'll get there this morning. But in Jonah, we saw God as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. A God willing to extend grace and mercy. And in Amos, even in the passage we just read, we see a God who detests vain religious ritual. A God who hates idolatry. A God who hates the mistreatment of the less privileged by those privileged with wealth or power or status or a majority position, or whatever. And so there is something for us in these books to learn about who God is, what God is like, and what God means for us as a people. And so that's why the call is to line our hearts with the heart of God. And Amos, God is overwhelmingly passionate against injustice, against idolatry, and against vain religious ritual. And if God is overwhelmingly opposed to that, if, if this matters so greatly to God, it has to matter to us as well. If God is passionate about something, well then we need to take note of what God is passionate about because that matters for us too as God's people. If God, it's not something we can gloss over. right? These things that God is so passionate about. I mean, God sent His very people, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, into exile away from their homes. That's what Amos is ultimately prophesying about. We'll get to that in a minute. But God disciplined them incredibly harshly because they claimed His name, and yet they worshipped in ways that were inappropriate. They worshipped idols, and they oppressed those who were less privileged than themselves. God disciplined them harshly because they claimed His name and yet they willingly accumulated wealth through injustice. They willingly worshipped idols and they willingly worshipped in a way that God had not commanded them to do thinking that they were appeasing the very God who was about to punish them. And those things that God was passionate about speak to our very existence today what we learn from Amos is that God doesn't want our worship right God doesn't want our worship if our lives are not exemplified by justice and righteousness if you miss that in this book you miss Amos 
God is very sarcastic about that very fact in this book. And, and that's not just on an individual level. That's for a body of believers as well. Because the way we treat others, the way we think about others, the way we act toward others, the way we deal with others, that says more about who we worship than what we do on Sunday morning. And to the northern kingdom of Israel, it said more about who they worship, the fact that they were willing to oppress others than anything else. Jesus very specifically says, they'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another, not by where you worship or how you worship. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. And that is so relevant to our culture and society. It's, it's, it's almost overwhelming how relevant it is, especially in the South where church attendance and membership is more cultural than anything else. Amos makes it clear that religious ritual in the absence of justice and righteousness is disgusting to our God. Especially when we think that our status with God and our worship of God somehow diminishes or minimizes our sin. Right? And, and this idea of injustice, right? we have to grasp that this just isn't something that was happening in the book of Amos. This is something that's happening today. This just isn't an idea from the Old Testament. It's real life stuff. And here's what we have to see, and here's what I want you to grasp, is that injustice and idolatry are joined at the hip. The two go hand in hand. That's why these prophets, the minor prophets, over and over and over are constantly hammering God's people about idolatry and injustice because they're joined together. They go together. And, and here's the thing, in our society, we will worship any and everything. We don't think we do, but we do. In our society, the, the big gods of our day are money and sex and power, but the reality is that we will worship anything that will serve as a functional Savior that's going to give us some meaning, that's going to make us feel good about ourselves, that's going to give us some sense of joy or something. We'll look for anything to be a functional Savior for us. It's the way our society is built. But the reality is this, we are never less human than when we are worshiping idols. Because God created us in His image to worship Him. And when we worship anything other than God, we are turned into something grotesque that willingly oppresses others and practices injustice. Worshiping idols will lead us straight down the road to injustice. Just a few get days ago, a, a writer that I follow on Twitter named Caitlin Scheiss posted this. There's a reason the prophets so consistently connect idolatry and social injustice. In the end, idols will always demand things of you that you can only give them by exploiting other people. Where injustice reigns, God is not being worshipped. And in a society where anything can be worshipped, wealth, race, power, status, beauty, 
sex, significance, popularity, education, our very nation itself, there is a 100% chance that somebody somewhere is being exploited because idols are being worshipped. And so the message of Amos is just as relevant to us as it has ever been. What Amos has to say is so incredibly relevant and poignant and important that we've got to hear it. These verses I read just a bit ago, there are two big ideas that I want us to grasp. Two big ideas. Number one, sin matters. Second, because God is just, He will not ignore sin. He will act on it. Sin matters. Have you ever been betrayed by someone? Trusted someone with a secret that they shared? Had someone cheat on you in a relationship? Had someone you trusted turn against you at work, at school? Had someone that you trusted manipulate or exploit you? Have you ever been betrayed by someone? I can't think about betrayal without thinking about the movie Braveheart. There's this scene in the movie Braveheart where uh, William Wallace has gone to this guy who's, who's named Robert the Bruce. And, right, you may have... Who, who's seen Braveheart? Let me just ask you. Okay, so hopefully this isn't too far-fetched. There's this scene where um, William Wallace is in battle, and he's gone to Robert the Bruce before the battle, and he's asked him to come and fight with him. And he's supposed to show up and, and help William Wallace and his army defeat the English army. And, uh, and Robert the Bruce doesn't show up. So the battle goes sideways, and, uh, and, and things start to fall apart, and at the end of the battle, William Wallace starts chasing this guy, tackles him off of a horse, pulls off his helmet, and is about, is about to take him out, and he pulls off the helmet of Robert the Bruce, the very guy that was supposed to show up and help him. And in Mel Gibson's finest acting moments, and he doesn't have a lot. But in his finest acting moments, he stumbles backwards and the look on his face of utter betrayal and shock can't be missed. Right? With the idea of betrayal in our minds, let's read verses 1 through 8 again. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? In verse 1, the people of Israel are reminded that God redeemed them and rescued them. 
and brought them out of Egypt when they were in captivity and bondage and slavery. In verse 2, God states that of everybody on the earth, of all the families, God has uniquely chosen and blessed the family of Abraham. They have a unique standing with God because God chose them and made them His own. Because God willingly, as the stronger party, offered His chosen people a covenant and a relationship that gave them a unique status with God. And in that covenant, God offered all sorts of blessings to His people, but they in turn had a responsibility as well. They had a responsibility to worship God in a certain way. They had a responsibility to live with others in light of that relationship, a responsibility to treat one another and foreigners and sojourners a certain way because of their relationship with God. In verse 2 in Amos chapter 3, things take a turn. God has reminded them of their covenant relationship and then He immediately says that they will be punished for their iniquities. In verses 3 through 8, Amos goes on to point out that disaster is imminent. And he does that by asking a series of questions that shows how certain sequences of events can lead to predictable outcomes. And the point there is to say, don't attribute this coming disaster to anything other than what is predictable. That you're being punished because you claim my name and you willingly oppress and treat others unjustly. Their injustice, the way they've forsaken God and betrayed God for idols, the way they betrayed God by trampling on the less privileged is leading to something predictable. It's leading to punishment and disaster. And so with these words from Amos, they have an opportunity to respond accordingly because God is roaring through Amos like a lion, telling them of their impending discipline, telling them of their sin, and offering repentance. Here's the thing about sin. For us, sin often doesn't seem like a big deal. Because we've had grace upon grace heaped upon us. Because most of us have probably lived pretty privileged lives. Sin often doesn't seem so bad. We know we can confess and receive forgiveness. And unless it affects our relationship or our finances, it just seems like it's not a big deal. We've got to recognize and we've got to see and we've got to grasp the horror of sin. In Amos, it's the horror of injustice and oppression and idolatry. It's the horror of the sin that we see in Amos. It's the horror of the sin that we see in our, li- in our, in our own selves that Jesus went to the cross for. And yes, we get grace upon grace. We get forgiveness. We get access to God because of what Christ did. But what's the cost of our sin? It's the unique horror that Jesus faced on the cross. Being forsaken by God, that you and I would never be forsaken by God. 
And church, you've got to understand, we've got to understand, I've got to understand that your sin matters. And your relationship with Christ does not excuse or minimize that sin in any way. Sure, your sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. The grace of the cross is yours. But what a high cost Jesus paid that we would be forgiven and have a right relationship with Christ. In, Israel, in, the, in the book of Amos, the Israelite nation, the northern kingdom, is about to bear the weight of their sin in some incredibly horrible ways. Chapter 4, verses 1-3 through three that I read earlier is a foreshadowing of that. It speaks of a time, it foreshadows a time when the Assyrian kingdom will come in to the cities of the northern kingdom and God's people will be pulled out of their cities by hooks in their cheeks or hooks in their noses. They'll be strung together like fish on a stringer by the hooks in their cheeks and noses like fish being pulled from the water and literally pulled into captivity. It's incredible. The, the weight of the sin that they are about to bear is so heavy. And for us, we recognize that Jesus has borne the weight of our sin. Jesus experienced that horror, that punishment, that discipline in our place. How precious is our Savior, but how horrible is our sin. Right? I want you to be moved by that. I want you to feel that. I want you to let that sink in. How great is our Savior, but how horrid is our sin. And so when we read the book of Amos, when we hear what Amos is saying to the northern kingdom, when we hear what God is speaking through Amos, let's not pretend that we're Amos. Let's understand that we're the people hearing the message. And our sin matters. But let's also grasp this, that because God is just, He will not ignore sin. Our God is patient. We learned that in Jonah. Our God is patient and patient and patient and patient but He will not ignore sin. God will act upon it. Francis Chan uses an illustration similar to this in a recent book that he wrote, but imagine that you've gone to eat at your favorite restaurant, wherever that is. And imagine that you've ordered your favorite food, whatever that is for you. The, the food, the dish that you love above all else. And you're sitting there in the restaurant and 20 or 30 minutes later, you see your server coming your way. And you begin to anticipate something delicious. But what the restaurant staff actually brings out to you is a dish of your least favorite food. Something that you utterly detest. And for the sake of this illustration, let's say that's spaghetti. And you say to them, but this isn't what I ordered. This isn't the direction I gave you. This isn't what I wanted. 
And in reply, they say, we know that. But this is the best plate of spaghetti that has ever been made. What do you do? Do you sit there and eat the thing you detest? Do you just put up with it despite the fact that you hate it? Or do you act on it? Do you say, no, 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 this is not what I ordered. Can you please just bring me what I ordered? Or you get up and you leave and you go somewhere else. But you don't put up with and eat the thing that you detest. That doesn't make sense. Let's read verses 9 through chapter 4, verse 3 again. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. These verses are grouped into three short paragraphs that we just read. Verses 9 through 12 speak very specifically to the fact that God will appoint an enemy of Israel to come in and destroy their places of violence and injustice. In verses 13 through 15, it speaks directly to the fact that God will destroy their places of security. And specifically, it mentions their places of worship where they probably thought they were worshiping to appease God, but in reality, God detested their worship. And verses 4, 1 through 3 speaks to a coming exile that I mentioned a second ago. Verse 12 has this really unique picture about imminent destruction. Ancient shepherds knew that they wouldn't be able to protect all of their sheep, so it would be customary that if a sheep was attacked by a wild animal, the shepherd would have to take the remains of the wild animal's meal to the owner of the sheep to prove that the sheep had died and not been stolen. Can you imagine having to take some bones and an ear to the owner of the sheep to say, the sheep was eating the remains of a wild animal's meal. Like, how graphic of a picture is that? That's incredible. God is saying that what will be left of the northern kingdom is like what a lion or bear or some other wild animal would leave behind when they eat a sheep. That's utterly shocking. 
But why is that happening? Because of oppression, because of injustice, because of their sin, and because God is just, He must act upon sin. In verses 13 through 15, God goes on to say that He will destroy any and all places of security. Verse 14 references the altars of Bethel. That's where King Jeroboam had set up an alternate place of worship, an alternate means of worship. That's also where they would go and worship idols. That's where a cow was erected for them to worship. It's crazy to me that God's people would erect a cow to worship, especially after what happened during their time leaving Egypt, but that's exactly what they did. And God is saying that this place where you go to ritualistically worship me despite your unjust ways, the same place where you go to worship idols because you think in that you have some sorts of of security because you think it's going to do something for you, well, I'm going to tear it down. And there will be no security in your worship any longer. And oh yeah, your summer homes and your winter homes and all the ivory that you've used to build things, I'm going to tear that down too. And in verses 4 through 1 through 3, God promises this coming exile. And he uses some really, really graphic language. He calls the, the wives of the affluent who have oppressed others, he calls them cows. I remember in high school when one of my teachers and coaches called a fellow student of mine a bossy heifer. It did not go over well. But Amos isn't comparing these women to the size of cows. That's how we would take it. He's probably referring to their laziness and inferring that they are so lazy that they use their wealth and privilege and status to manipulate and oppress others for their own benefit. He predicts a day when these people will be taken out of their homes through breaches in the walls of their city with hooks in their cheeks tied together, ruthlessly pulled along by ropes. But why is that going to happen? Because God's people, whom God set apart as His own, well, they've pretended to worship God, all the while inflicting violence and injustice on others, even as they've practiced idolatry. And since God is a just and righteous God, He cannot tolerate nor bless the practice of injustice among His people. It is against His nature. God detests injustice and God chooses to discipline His people for their sin. And that is hard to read. And what happened to the people of the northern kingdom is difficult to think about. But it's completely within God's right to discipline and to judge His people. Ultimately, there's good news here though. In Amos, God acts against injustice by disciplining His people. But with Jesus, God has acted against injustice by dying on the cross in our place. From the very 
moment of his first breath, Jesus was marching towards the cross because God is unwilling to compromise his justice in order to deliver his forgiveness. On the cross, as Jesus is paying our debt, God would not and did not close his eyes to humanity's incalculable violations of his just requirements in order to extend grace. I'm never going to put that word in a sermon again. <laughs> On the cross, as Jesus is paying our debt, God would not close his eyes to his just requirements in order to extend grace. Because God is a perfectly holy God. And he didn't even consider putting up with the thing he detested as if it was just a plate of spaghetti. Instead of putting up with it, he acted on it. And Jesus died on the cross. In Amos, God's people didn't repent and they bore the weight of their offenses. But Jesus bore the weight of our offenses because God is just. If there is no breaking of God's just requirements, there is no need for forgiveness. It is vital to recognize and to remember and to remember it over and over and over that the cross not only extends God's forgiveness to us, the cross upholds God's justice. And so it's on the cross that grace and justice come together and meet. And that means that we cannot celebrate. We cannot proclaim the message of God's grace while we do what God would never do. Close our eyes to injustice. The cross forbids me and the cross forbids you as God's people to close your eyes to any form of injustice, whether it be personal, corporate, governmental, ecclesiastical, or systemic. There should be no community that is a more present, active, and vocal advocate for justice than the community that preaches the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear me. God hates injustice because God is just. And so we must align our hearts with the heart of God. God detests vain religious ritual. So should we. God detests injustice. So should we. God detests idolatry of any form. So should we. As we move through the minor prophets, we are going to hear this over and over and over and over. Let's not hear the condemnation of these things as something not relevant to us. Because we're missing the point if we don't grasp that we're in this story too. And that God is speaking to us. And justice is not something that's out there somewhere. 
is something that we've got to ask ourselves. How have I, how have I willingly practiced injustice? And it is a hard conversation to have. What idols are occupying my heart and mind that would lead me to exploit others for my own benefit? Is it an idol of race? Is it an idol of wealth? Or something else all together? We're in this story. Where are we worshiping vainly because in our lives we're willingly participating in sin and injustice and idolatry? Guys, let's do the hard work. I can't tell you your sin. You know what it is. And quite honestly, I hope that God is bringing it to mind right now. Not so that you are shamed, but so that we repent. And that we come back to the very God who is calling us to do so. Let's see ourselves in the story. Let's see what God is calling us to. Let's see what idolatry we need to move out of our lives. Let's see what injustice that we, that we have practiced ourselves. Let's take our sin seriously. Because it matters. And because Jesus died on the cross that we might be forgiven. And so that justice might be done. We're going to move into a time of response. And so even now as we enter this time of response, I would ask you to simply begin to deal with these things in your hearts and minds as God would lead us to do so. During this time, uh, the band's going to come back up, lead us in a few songs, give us an opportunity to worship through, th- through singing, I invite you to sing if that's what God would have for you. I'd invite you to sit and pray, whatever else it might be that you need to do during this time. You have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back uh, with instructions on other ways to give as well. Um, we also have an opportunity to take communion. Um, and so I would invite you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and God gives you the freedom to do so, to come forward and tear off the bread and dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember the body of Christ that was given for us. And so remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. When we take communion, this is what we're doing. We're remembering what Christ has done for us. And we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it and that it's true. So if you want to come and do that this morning, I would invite you to do so. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move on. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that you are holy and just that you are patient and God at the same time you will not tolerate our injustice our sin our idolatry but God you've given us a way to be forgiven you've you've given us a way to be rightly related to you you've given us a way for our our sins to be cleansed and for us to be able to boldly approach your throne of grace, and that's through Christ. 
So God, even now as we close down our time of worship, as we spend some time responding and reflecting on what you would have for us, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the debt that he paid and for what that means for us. And Holy Father, we ask all these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.